market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is, well, not down 17.8%. Not in sales, not in price. We're still free. That's a good start. I'm Scott Phillips with me, as always, and on a wonderful but a little bit drizzly Thursday morning, Dr. Anir Barnhartsy. How are you, Doc? I am very good, Captain. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for asking. Now, listeners, we are trying a little bit of a different audio solution this time to try and improve the quality of the audio. If it's working, a little bit like Paul and Nancy, if you can hear this, it means it's working. If you can't hear this, well, Doc and I are wasting our time. But let's assume, mate, everything's okay, and let's get on with it on that basis. We have got such a lot of stuff to get through today, mate. Um, a bit of it, a bit of it macro, a little bit company specific. We're going to talk about the ASX performance. We're going to talk about retail sales, as I mentioned, a bit of macro stuff, a bit of kind of the, what, what the future of work might look like. And of course, we'll talk about property. So lots and lots of stuff. And mate, I reckon we should, um, don't you we should dip into the full mailbag at the end of it? Oh, maybe a little bit. <laughs> All right, let's do that. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, buddy, let's get on with it. The, I, I, not, a, not a long one for discussion necessarily, but at the very, very top, hard not to notice that we're recording this Thursday morning as we do, and as I say every week, and apologies for those who are sick of me saying it, but I do want to kind of date stamp this stuff. There's so much changing so quickly. And for those who haven't heard us before, just so everyone is aware, we do record this a day before you're hearing it. Um, Wednesday night or Wednesday afternoon was a four-day winning streak, a four days of positive results for the ASX, the first time we've had four good days, four green days, since the pandemic started, which is kind of just, you know, uh, does it mean anything? Probably not, at least nothing that we need to necessarily do anything about, but it is something, right? It says something about the way the market, investors, speculators, traders, the entire shebang, how people are thinking about the market and investing right now. Yeah, that's it's, it's interesting. Like, I mean, you know, like we don't pay that much attention to what's happening on a day-to-day basis, right? right. So, I mean, uh, but it is interesting that we got, you know, um, several green days. I, I mean, I, I think overarchingly what is interesting is this thought process that, you know, we have this huge, big, um, you know, demand dislocation, this huge, mm-hmm. big economic shock. Um, you know, one way of thinking about it would have been that, oh, you're going to have this, you know, terrible stock market for like, you know, a year or maybe two years or something like right, that. Right, it's right, anything right. like that, right? Um, and, and I think, it's, you know, to some extent, it speaks to, you know, what are the choices? We have talked about this before. What are the choices in front of people? Well, not too many uh, when, you know, when rates are all, you know, ridiculously low everywhere. You can't park your money, uh, money <laughs> elsewhere. You know, overnightly, UK, yep. for example, is raising money at what negative interest rates. Right. Think about that. <clears throat> then, um, you know, combine that with the fact that, uh, you know, the stock market tends to be forward thinking. So, you know, people are basically written off what's happening this year and already starting to think about what's going to happen next year and the year after. Right. So um, it, nevertheless, it's good to see some green and uh, it's pleasing to see some green. Uh, we'll take it when we have it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It is a funny thing in the market. We should we should. Um you know, it, it, Warren Buffett himself, and I, know, and I would talk about Buffett all the time, and I know you're sick of hearing about it, and I don't care, so I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, Buffett himself talks about the fact that you know, as a net buyer, in other words, unless you're in retirement and drawing down your assets, you actually should want lower prices rather than higher because it obviously means you're getting a better deal, right? If you can if you can fill up your petrol tank at, at 80 cents a litre, um, you know, the fact that prices are lower shouldn't worry you. You should be really happy you get to buy more at cheaper prices. That is the mm. logical, rational view. 
But it's also fair to say that it's really, really confidence sapping, right? For, for average investors, we've got some questions from our listeners we may deal with mm. today or may, maybe on Sunday. Um, but, you know, on exactly that story, right? It's like it's one thing to say, okay, I know this happens, but I don't know if I can quite get the, the motivation, the confidence up in a, in a falling market to actually start buying stock. So it's a bit of a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of mm. outcome. Um, I guess, as you say, look, the short term doesn't matter uh, in, in a long-term thesis, but it kind of really does mess with your head. It's true. Like, I mean, you know, hypothetically, if somebody has a $100,000 portfolio and that's down 30%, now you're, let's say, a $70,000 portfolio, right? Now, uh, if you were going to invest, now, if you had $10,000 to invest at that point in time, but, you know, you you, psychologically, you'll think that, you know, you've lost $30,000. I'm not not going to throw more money, good money after bad. I'm going to wait till the market goes up, then I'm going to buy. It's it's a really really logical or it's a really understandable thought. It's just really, it's really counterproductive, right? It's kind of productive. It's I think it's the, the the funny thing is that you could actually get caught out both ways, right? So you could say that well, you know, now it's down and it's probably going to go down further, so I'm not going to buy. And then when it goes up, well, so now it's up and I'm not going to buy. <laughs> That's right. I missed the bottom. I'll wait till next time. Exactly. Exactly. So, so yeah. it's uh, it, it 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 is. Uh, I think. Uh, largely, though, I think this is a big problem with investors who are who have been investing for actually a longer time because they've got more money in the market. Because it, I think, I think it psychologically uh, yeah. impacts the more money you've got in the market. I think it psychologically impacts um, your mind just because yeah, you know totally. you see those large numbers. Percentage-wise, it's the same thing, right? But if somebody's got a million dollars and it's down thirty percent, versus somebody's got a hundred thousand dollars and down thirty percent, somebody's got ten thousand dollars and down thirty percent, I think psychologically those numbers would would mean different things. Yeah. So it really hurts, right? When you lose uh, the value of a yeah. new car, mate, you're entitled to feel a little bit unhappy. Oh, uh, you know, in somebody's case, it could be like a you know down payment for a house, right? So it is crazy. Yeah, mate. Um, let's move on. I, I want to talk a little bit. Let's do a little bit of geopolitics, just briefly. Um, mm. It's not really our forte. We don't want to spend too long on it, but it has economic implications and potentially, you know, um, stock market implications if it comes to that. I am. I don't, know, I don't know. We haven't talked about this actually, so I'd be interested in your thoughts. I'm, I'm, I have a pretty clear view of my, my thought is, is, but I may be well wrong. During the week, Australia decided to play um, regional cop, maybe, or or maybe maybe school prefect when it came to China and this whole WHO inquiry thing, right? So we know the coronavirus started in China. We all get that. For and I'll, I'll lay my cards on the table, and I'll, I'll, I'll speak in the pejorative, and then you can you can correct me for some unknown reason to me the Australian government decided it was going to pick a fight with the biggest kid in the classroom despite you know we're the, we're the weakling kindy kid and you know we're picking fight with the year 12 kids saying you shouldn't have done that or I'm going to tell you know, I'm going to tell mum on you um, and so we did and then China decided it was going to whack us with an 80% tariff on barley now if you believe the prognostications it's got nothing to do with each other uh, I called BS on that. I yelled BS at the top of my voice about that. Of course it has. It wouldn't be the first time. It won't be the last time China retaliated to a, a country getting involved in it, what tries its, its own business by making it feel a little bit of economic pain, not so much as to damage China's own business. They're not going to whack it on iron ore anytime soon, but just, just giving us a bit of a clip over the year when it comes to barley tariffs, just to make a point. Hey, guys, just pick your, pick your enemies a bit more cleverly here because we can really make it hurt for you if we choose to. Just be a little bit careful. 
that's, I mean, again, I've put, my, put my, my cards on the table here. I'm all for, I tweeted during the week, I'm all for principles, absolutely. If someone that said to us, do we think China should do more with it? Absolutely, yes, we do. You know, we can absolutely be honest, we can absolutely have our principles, do our thing, to literally pick a fight with China when we have no hope of winning it anyway and nothing to gain other than a bit of domestic political kind of point scoring. And again, not party political, just literally, you know, Trump's doing the same, the old old idea of, you know, we're tough on China, we're not going to let them get away with it. And I had that response on Twitter. Yeah, well, someone's got to do it. It's like, well, yeah, okay, but it's not us, right? <laughs> if, if, if a year 12 kid's bullying some other year 12 kid, it's not the kindy kid's job to start a fight with him, I wouldn't have thought. So I, I think it's a bit crazy, mate. And I, I am worried that, you know, this sort of stuff that, that is easy to do politically, easy to do, you know, kind of ideologically, really can have meaningful economic costs and for no real benefit. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. So I have mixed views on this. So... Like so, here's here's another way to think about that, right? So, if you look at the sequence of how things have played out, mm. then there is there there are genuine questions to be asked, both of the mm. WHO, which we all different countries fund, um, and um, you know there's questions to be asked of China in terms of how it actually communicated information. So did actually, Sorry, you know, yeah. the initial storyline was um, they're communicating more information, they're communicating information more clearly in terms of SARS mm. uh, versus SARS. And now, uh, you know, we are seeing more clarity. It actually turns out it was less mm. clarity. And um, <laughs> so that, so another way to think about it is that there's this trillions of dollars of economic cost. Um, I get it that the other countries which are complaining about it could have done different things to reduce their own cost. They didn't. Uh, but there is this question definitely of, you know, was information communicated properly? Is WHO really an independent organization? Is WHO actually doing its job or is it playing, you know, party politics? So uh, I think Australia I agree with that, by the, the way. I think that's, yeah. the, that's the principal question. My, my, and I have, no, I have no issue with China being held to account in, in the global, you know, the court of global affairs, whatever, we, whatever you want to call it. It just seems like, uh, you know, Australia putting its, leading with its chin on this one. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I so so I mean, I mean, Australia probably. Here's the thing. You know, we don't know what happened behind the scenes, right? You know, right. somebody must have told Australia, "You put the case forward. We will support it." Like, I mean, this whatever it was, this was supported by like eighty eighty odd countries, right? Uh, or ninety oh, yeah, odd countries. Yeah, so. It had oh, it had overwhelming um, global support. Now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, here's the flip side, right? If eighty countries support it or ninety countries support it. Um, you know, sure, China can impose um, tariffs on barley, but China's got to import, uh, you know, uh, import that barley from somewhere, <laughs> right? Um, so it doesn't take our barley, it's going to take somebody else's barley, but there are 90 other countries who are saying the same thing, right? So, I mean, I get it. Uh, I think that, that's the thing, you know, though, right? Like, we, we, won't, we weren't punished for voting for the the resolution. We, we did the, you know... Diplomacy is better done behind closed doors, right, rather than the court of public opinion. To literally, you know, we, to your point, the other 89 countries, or 79 countries, will sell their barley to China with no, no, with no tariff, right? We're getting whacked with a tariff for having the temerity to try and be the, the bully boy on the global stage with a megaphone saying, you, you know, so-and-so's in China, we're going to show you who's boss. And China's like, no, actually, we're going to show you who's boss. Yeah, the, the resolution will pass either way. Just because you guys felt like you needed to be uppity and make a make it you know a grandstanding speech, that's why we're getting whacked, as you say. No one else is going to have that tariff applied. We're bearing the cost for being in politics. I think. 
No, well, I don't think that's true, right? I mean, so like, I mean, other countries are going to also see various sort of. I mean, China is going to give. Uh, China is going to come back with you know tariffs on this, you know tariffs on this company, tariffs on that company, making you know. It's a it's a fight, right? If it's a fight like this, then there's going to be tariffs imposed or some other restrictions imposed. So for example, overnight, uh, you, you know. Um, the uh, the the U.S. has ruled that he's going to impose extra conditions for Chinese companies to list on the on the U.S. Uh, yeah, yeah. They want more more um, uh, more uh, clarity. You know how the auditing is happening. Um, the board has to declare. So I I think it's I, I think it's different countries going to be hit differently. Um, does it? I mean, you know, sometimes I think the principle comes ahead of. Uh, of the economic cost, I, I think the broader question here to ask is, you you can't be too dependent on any one country. If you're too, if your future is too intertwined with any one country, you've got a trouble. Mm. It's the same thing with, uh, in my view, with you know, if your economic economy is tied to one thing, you've got a problem. I would yeah. say diversification and, uh, you, you know, you've got to diversify. You can't, you know, you can't be, if, if Australia's future is, okay, we're going to ride the, the China tailwind, then there is a problem because mm-hmm. then your future is basically, you're basically making China subordinate because yeah. you need things to. So I think, I think that a little bit of independence is, is good. Um, you know, like, as you said, you know, they're not going to, they're going to take out, I don't know. <laughs> Right. They're going to take our coal. Um, Right. They're not taking our barley. Well, you know, Okay. well, maybe we can charge them more for our coal and barley. (laughs) Right. I mean, (laughs) I I don't know. I mean, I get it. I get the viewpoint of why, you know, the fight should be. But, you know, it's like one of those things where if nobody says anything, well, then, you know, the status quo continues. So should we accept the status quo? And I think the answer that is in my mind. No. Could this have been done better? I really don't know. Um, But. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen, right? I mean, even things like, you know, approval for, um, you know, whether your milk, for example, that you're selling from Australia, is it approved in China? You know, they make, you know, you could always delay the process and say, well, that's our process, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. I don't, you know, I, I see a cost for it, but is it bad politics? I really don't know. Fair enough. I, um, we will we will agree to disagree. Suffice to say, I would, I would do foreign policy a little bit differently. Uh, let, let's uh, let's move on to I don't know maybe some, some questionably you know, some questionable news to some outright bad news, mate. We saw during the week the retail sales for the month of April. Get this, down seventeen point eight percent. Now mm. that's a large number, and I think it's a large enough number that people can contextualise it just by itself. But putting mm. a couple of extra thing, you know, kind of thoughts around it, it's one dollar and six, not being spent. Mm. If you think about it, you know, $36 we spent last time, we're only spending $5 this time. And again, is that a big deal? Well, yeah, absolutely. When GDP growth is measured in single-digit percentages, when retail sales are down almost 18%, that is phenomenally huge. Now, there is one caveat or at least, um, you know, there's, there's one way to explain it. Retail sales were up mm. 8% in March. So the other thing is, of course, we stockpiled and panic bought everything mm. from flour to pasta to toilet paper famously. Um, mm. God love us as a country. So to some degree, you know, you, you can you can sort of eat, you know, even those out or at least, you know, give, give a bit back to March and take a bit from April. Maybe we're saying sales are down net-net about 10%, which is still a dollar in 10, which is still a phenomenally large number. Um, mm. Against that, I guess, you know, various states are reopening cafes, shops, um, 
travel in New South Wales is opening from June 1. Where are we, mate, when, with, with the physical economy? What do the retail sales numbers say about where we are, what the risks are, what's coming next? Well, like, I mean, the April numbers, though, like, let's we can conceptualize it. April was basically all shut down, right? So, yeah. I mean, the 20%, here's another way to look at it. We actually didn't lose the remaining 80%. <laughs> 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 like, it's not zero, right? I so, I mean, around here. I like that one. That's good. Well, well but, but it's like, I mean, I would have thought the number would actually be significantly worse. It's it okay, actually yeah. surprised me that um, it's only down that much because you know everything was basically yeah, shut down, sense. right? I mean, right, right. Um, but no gym, it is, no nails, no gym, no hair, no yeah, right. Yeah, like, I mean, you know, and, and voluntarily lots of shops had closed down, basically, true, that true. they decided to voluntarily close. So basically, you couldn't really shop. People were scared. People were not shopping. Um, it is a huge number. It has huge economic implications um, for jobs and so on. But, I mean, it was, to my mind, also, it was expected to some extent um, that it would be down. I, I think everything that has happened until now, in many ways was expected, right? Like, I mean, we knew that there's going to be a bump in, in, in March given the crazy stockpiling <laughs> that was going on for starting for like, there was a time when there was no potato available on calls. Uh, like, That's you know, right, you couldn't yeah. find potato. Right, so so we stockpiled in March, then we, you know, we didn't buy anything in, in like, you know, April uh, because we were told mm -hmm. to stay at home. And, and then I think what happens next is, is really what is, I think, important, right? What happens next? Are people going to come back to spend the way they were spending previously? Um, and what happens actually come September, right? When this job keeper thing disappears, uh, right? There's a lot of money that's floating around that's being, you know, provided to provide that stimulus. What happens post that is that, that I think, you know, I don't have a view on that because it's really hard to know what's going to happen between now and then. So I think these numbers were okay, um, you know, and more stores are opening now. So these numbers are likely to go up, right? Uh, restaurants are back, you know, at least in some form or shape, shape or form, cafes, pubs. So fingers crossed. There is a crazy possibility, you know, because of the way the calendar fell, um, it, it's probable that first quarter GDP was positive because of the massive spike in March. It's almost it's it's inevitable that the second quarter of GDP will be terribly low, um, because you know April May June will be tough. It's entirely possible that we get back to business by July August September. We actually don't even enter a technical recession, which is a pretty crazy context if you think about it. So a recession is officially two quarters of negative GDP growth, um, and it's entirely possible we actually don't have that. We have you know a decent first quarter, a shocking second quarter. We actually might have a positive third quarter. We actually literally may avoid. And look, the, the de definitions are irrelevant, right? It doesn't really matter. The, the reality is the reality. But it's entirely possible we actually don't have a recession, which is just a really, really bizarre concept, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's, that's you know again okay, the the thing with the, the definition of recession too. It's it's like a lot of the things for these definitions is like okay, so how many job losses did we have? Well, but you know people on JobKeeper are actually not counted as job losses, right? Correct, so correct. so we don't really know what's going on. Uh, it, a lot of things about about the economy are yep. fake numbers and confidence building. <laughs> That's why employment not having a recession. It's a bizarre. It's a bizarre concept. Yeah, it's, 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 it's yeah. It's yeah. So you, you 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 know, and if it happens, that's great. You know, if it helps with the confidence, that's even even better. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot a lot of these things are, uh, un, un, a lot of these things are unreal numbers in that sense, right? So I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, we'll see what happens. I mean, even Maya apparently was opening some stores. So we're recording this on Thursday, but this gets published on Friday. So today, Friday. 
Um, Meyer's even opening some stores. It, it really feels like, to some degree, we might get back to normal, assuming no second outbreak or you know massive second wave. We actually might get back to normal more quickly. I think most of us dared hope. Yeah, like I mean, June one seems like June one as a starting point, right? Seems mm-hmm. actually early. I had thought somewhere around September, October would yeah, be yeah, same. Uh, when. Uh, the I'll one I'll throw one thing in, into the caution though. Like I mean, what? The thing to remember is large sectors of the economy are still basically closed, right? Um, so, so there's no tourism, really. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no immigration. Those are, I think, two big factors uh, mm-hmm. that that are significant contributors to the economy in different ways, right? So n- no new net migration basically means that there's, you know, a lot of the activity that comes because of new people coming in is not there. A lot of the activity that comes because of, you know, seasonal visitors is not there, uh, you know, things like airports are not working, airlines are not working, uh, hotels, um, you know, restaurants, pubs that get right, visitors right, right. are not, you know. So a lot of the industry around that is um, is basically still at a standstill. Universities that rely on foreign student, students are uh, going to continue to hurt. So, I mean, it's not business as usual, but it's definitely like, I mean, better than what one would have. So, I mean, it's a, it's a relative thing, right? You know, if you think you're going to be completely <laughs> dead, but you're not dead, uh, mm-hmm. you're half alive. Then half alive is actually already better than being completely better, dead. Yeah, exactly. So, exactly. It's, it's, it's a relative thing. So, um, and you know, there's still some squabbling going on in terms of you know, like for example, e- e- interstate tourism, right? That's a big thing. Um, but if interstate tourism looks like it's still still under, a, you know, we are in border wars. Uh, you know, you talk about border wars internationally. There's border war going on uh, domestically. So. So there's all those things that are still, but yeah, it, overall, I think it looks definitely way better than what one would have thought. And maybe that actually helps, right? It's way better than what we thought it would be. And therefore, um, it's not as bad. I think really, that's a really good point. And I think that's the thing, right? We're not, we're not talking about, you know, will we, will we be able to grow or, or how, how, you know, how much will growth be? You know, this is a decline. This is a, a mess for the economy. It's just a question of how bad does it get. I got to say, I think the interstate tourism stuff is it. It drives me a little. I'm not going to rant. I, I, well, I might a little bit. Um, the whole interstate tourism thing drives me nuts, right? Like, we're all Australians until my people are better than your people, or or, or something. Like, you know, it's it just it drives me a little bit. You know, the bloody New South Wales Premier and the WA Premier are yelling at each other across South Australia. Uh, poor South Australia, they get overlooked all the time, right? So they, they're not even part of the fight. It's um, it's the it's the New South Welshman and the and the West Australians. And just that idea, yeah. Well, if the Premier doesn't like it, bad luck. I'm going to do my thing for my people and. I know, I know politics is about self-interest and I get it, I do, but it's just, you know, when, next time when one of them says, we're all Australians or all Australians should pull together and do whatever, it, you know, I'm going to take great delight and I'm not a snarky person by nature, but just reminding, you know, my, my half a dozen followers on Twitter that, you know, the, the premiers at this point on the 21st of May were saying, no, it's my state, no, it's my state, no, it's my state. Um, when they then, you know, when WA wants something or Queensland wants something, it says, well, we're all Australians here. It's funny how uh, the, 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 the mantra changes slightly when it comes to making a, making a political point. Oh, yeah, I agree. I, I mean, here, here's the, the other interesting thing is like, you know, it, it, uh, to the benefit of the smaller states, which population-wise, right, you know, states like Queensland actually would benefit yeah, more yeah. <laughs> from opening up because there'll be, you know, travel uh, from New South Wales. Uh, I think that's and, right, and actually, Victoria, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the two bigger states would actually benefit um, yeah. The you know the and 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 Queensland has so much tourism, right? I mean, mm-hmm. um, but but you know, well, uh, I'm sure this would also get resolved. Uh, 
you know, this is uh, version two of Barley Wars in some form, right? This is <laughs> this is another form of Barley thing, Wars. Right? The, the pro- I'm, I'm not going to. I will just say the parochialism of politics is is at a at a. I want to say multi-decade high. I mean, it's been worse at different times in the past, but between the nations, between even between the states, just that really basic level of parochial retail politics is really quite ugly. You know, that just that idea of, you know, my people and your people, us and them, that stuff, is just becoming really, really weaponised. Um, that being said, I think I'm just grumpy, mate, because I was supposed to go to South Australia and Northern Territory for the uh, winter school holidays from the young bloke. So I think, I think I'm probably just I'm probably just grumpy about that. Maybe I should um, get over myself. I am going to go and, and travel in uh, Western New South Wales instead, though. So that's kind of exciting. Looking forward to that. Where are you, you going? Go. New, new, uh, Southern New South, South Wales? Going to go out to, out to Burke, um, down the Darling River Run is the plan. So Burke, Menindee, um, at Broken Hill, probably maybe up to Lightning Ridge somewhere in there. So we'll do, we'll do a bit of that. I think we'll jump in the car and, and gra- throw on the camper trailer and, and do a bit of, bit of travel in, in the middle of July. So that's our plan at the moment anyway. How about you? Cool. You're going anywhere in the middle of the year? You know, I have not decided. I, I am one of those people who would like to see what is happening. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm a little uh, too cautious when it comes to that. You know, my, <laughs> my, my, my thing is I haven't actually gone to a sit-down restaurant yet. Um, yeah, right. and, um, but I do takeaways and I'll, I'll do my takeaway coffee, but I've not Mm-mm. gone for a sit-down meal yet. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, again, I'm just a little cautious. But mm-hmm. I, my, my thing is that I've, I've given July, the, the June one, uh, is a good point, you know. Maybe mid June, I'll consider some of that, and then we'll <laughs> nice see. One. Now we're, uh, we're we're going we're going to go camping, so we'll be miles away from anybody. We're probably uh, probably safe safer there than in the, in the main street of our, our local town. So we'll see we'll see what happens. All right, let's move on, mate. All right, let's let's um uh, let's mention Virgin just in passing, only because it kind of pertains to what we've talked about with travel and that kind of stuff. It seems thus far that Virgin may well actually run even the administrators may run out of cash. They're going to tap the government and say, hey, we need some kind of working capital here, guys. We can't keep this thing going until the sale process gets completed unless you throw us some money. It still may, the whole thing still may fall over. There may still be no airline to buy when the bidders have finally got their, their bids done and the, and the administrators have a chance to look through them. Um, Rex, of course, famously said it was going to try and travel between Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. I did see yesterday they apologised for saying that publicly without telling the ASX. Um, and that was fair too. So a, a reminder for small companies, don't say stuff publicly until you've told the market. Um, you know, I, to some degree, you know, Qantas is doing $19 flights. They're not going to do social distancing, but that seems like it's underway. Again, it's one of those stories. Are these green shoots, mate, or are these um, you know, hopes and dreams that, that may not deliver much? I don't know. Like, I mean, I love Qantas. I'm a big Qantas fan, uh, as you would know. But uh, like the airline, uh, not not this talk. <laughs> the airline. I, I love the airline. I love the brand. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm not. I'm actually not quite impressed with their plan because, well, their plan basically is essentially saying, well, it's, it's essentially the same as before, and we're just going to give you some face masks and some, you know, wipes, and you know, that's going to be it, basically, right? right. Uh, basically. Yeah. So, on the other hand, though. If come July or whatever it is, like, you know, if this is the new normal and we just have to accept that, you know, now that yeah. we have sort of flattened the peak and we've got to kind of deal with cases as they come and we have the capacity mm-hmm. to deal with it, then maybe that is what you do. So maybe they're forward planning ahead. So, yeah, okay. uh, you know, uh, what is the, I mean, it's like, what is the point of flying an airline with half empty? Yeah. If <laughs> we just can't, right? <laughs> or, the more you fly, or, the more or, money you lose. Oh, yeah, more money you lose. I mean, and, you know, you and the same thing with public transport and so on. You know, you probably need to get back to some semblance of what 
needs to yeah. be. So I don't know. I, I again, this is a, this is really a hard question to answer. Um, Virgin, I really, I mean, I would like to know what Virgin's costs are. <laughs> Every day, what is the running cost for Virgin? I'm, I, I'm sure that there's probably cost for leasing of the, you know, the airplane leases are probably mounting every day and you've got to pay for those. Uh, but nothing is flying, right? I mean, you know, and, the, you know, they've gotten rid of most of their staff. So yep. no fuel cost or other plans? No fuel, no, no fuel cost. And maybe there's some staff cost being paid via, you know, maybe some JobKeeper thing. But, um, yeah, like, I mean, I would assume that the leases on the planes are the main cost right now. It's, uh, I, I don't have a view on Virgin. I mean, again, it should be attractive to someone, um, but I don't know why they can't come up with a, with a dealer agreement. You know, bizarre, maybe, the, maybe, the, maybe the ownership, existing ownership structure is actually the problem, right? Because there's already a bunch of airlines involved. Um, it's going to, you know, I think that that is probably part of the problem. Mm. All right, mate. Let's 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 look forward for change. Uh, we're doing a little bit of that, but but let's look even further forward. You, you you said to me this morning we should talk about office or no office, and there was mm. an article in the AFR, and the the headline reads, <laughs> as is for a Stark, why sixty billion dollars of commercial office loans have bankers worried. So we all are getting more used to working from home. Twitter during the week told all of their employees globally, you never, ever, ever have to come back to the office if you don't want to. You can work from home mm-hmm. forever. Was it, did Google do the same? I had, there was some, some, other, some other company. Tell, um, company Square. So they're, Square they're both run Square. by Square. Yeah, so oh, they're both run by Dorsey. Jack Dorsey. So. Yeah, okay. So, so, you know, this is, this is some degree, you know, we've always worked from home or at least a lot of the time we've worked from home at the full, so we're not impacted directly. But there's plenty of people, so some people are saying, look, get me back to the office, I want to get away from, out of the house and away from the kids, and that's, I guess, fair. Others are saying, I kind of like this work from home thing, I'd like to do more of it. Um, it raises a heap of questions about the, the value, the future of offices, of commercial property. It does. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because a lot of the work that people do today, especially in the knowledge economy, right, that mm. doesn't actually require people to show up at an office, right? And and with, with technology and the internet and, you know, like what, what we're doing with Zoom, like, I mean, you can record um, a video call, you could do a conference, it's almost like, you know, the other person is just basically there, right? right. Um, so... I mean, I does pose that question. You know, there are some things that you know, if you, if you, even if you're a doctor, you know, you could do actually telehealth, right? So you could actually do a lot of things via telehealth, which you know, you probably still read your rooms because you're going to see people <laughs> occasionally. <Yeah. laughs> but 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 there are many many things uh, that actually don't need an office. So that, that does pose an interesting question. The commercial real estate, especially around uh, in you know, capital cities, right, which have hosts a lot of these offices, do they really need? Um, you know that much office space. There's, you know, and that has flow-on impacts in terms of you know what the construction industry is going to see. So it's uh, again like Jack Dorsey is saying that you know everybody can in Twitter and Square can uh, work forever from home. Uh, I don't think it's quite that <laughs> because um, there are going to be people in offices. You know, for various reasons, uh, but it does mean that you know it. Just, I think this this pandemic has done. Has, has done a few things. So one of them is, you know, I think it'll speed up digitization and yeah. acceptance of digital technology. It, it'll also change mindsets around uh, how modern work happens. So, so those, those are, I think, real changes that will happen. I think it's, and, and, and some of the things like, you know, telehealth and, and so on will get a boost in the sense that, you know, like what people thought 
would happen down the future that actually is happening mm. now. And if it has happened, mm. and it's, it's actually an improvement. Um, you, you know, people don't have to come to park. They don't have to, you know, spend several hours traveling. They don't have to, you know, right. uh, b- bump against each other in a crowded train, um, you know, then stand uh, down for the you know elevator to come for, you know, another 15, 20 minutes to just get into an elevator. So you, there's a lot of productivity <laughs> gain that can happen uh, yeah. from that. Um, so that I, I think it's... It's likely to happen. Is it, does it mean the end of office? It doesn't, but I think it does maybe put some pressure um, going forward into that sort of market, which is you know, which is where the banks are worried uh, in terms of the commercial loans and stuff that they've given. You know, sixty billion dollars or so is is what the you know is the loans, commercial loans, in um, in the capital cities or something like that that they're talking about. So mm-hmm. it's um it's fascinating because. On uh, one hand, we're saying people work from home. On the other hand, we're saying social distancing, social distancing is important. Um, questions for co-working spaces. I mean, you know, how close are our desks going to be? How many can you fit in a, in a room? Questions for office environments. Again, the same thing. I saw someone say the other day, hot desking is dead. The idea that you kind of come in and just sit wherever you want because whenever you get there, you just grab, grab the nearest desk and start working. There's some sense of kind of like my space, my disinfected space, you know, that's cleaned and, and you can't have it and kind of that, that real kind of, we talk about parochialism and nationalism, almost the, the isolationism of that kind of idea of like it's my safe, safe space and no one else is close to me. There's a whole lot of questions, that, you know, that can potentially go both ways here. I, I tend to think you're right, but it's also that case of if you're saying you can work from home, you're also implying to some degree you can also work in the office if you want to and... If everyone wants to at the same time, you need a degree of space. It's, I mean, you know, Twitter's kind of gone halfway. Until they start closing offices, I guess you have to allow for most of the staff to be in the office if they want, or at least some some version of that. Meaning that a lot of the time you have this empty space that you're just kind of holding holding open in case people want it. Yeah, so I, the way I was looking at this is that a lot of companies have offices already, right? So what I think is going to put pressure going forward is on expansion. Like, so one of the big drivers for office space in capital cities is just large companies, large multinationals basically opening offices, you know, expanding, growing, adding, uh, you know, workers. And I think if they're going to add workers and they don't need to fill the space, um, you know, they're adding workers, but they don't, you know, need to bring them at a certain space, then I think that creates. um, it, It also actually, funnily enough, has interesting dynamics for cities because you know, like if you think about, you know, tech hubs, right? You think think of in Australia, tech hub is like Melbourne and, you know, like parts of Sydney, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this changes that definition, right? The tech hub could, for all I care, be in like, you know, Geelong uh, or it could exactly be, right. in, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. In, in Darwin, right? Because you can now, you can now actually, you know, hire talent more freely anywhere and you can just let them be there and that changes you know like you don't have to pay people cost of living for Sydney you can mm, maybe they mm. can live in, in Darwin so I think that that changes dynamics for a lot of things um, you know there, there are lots of interesting implications of that there's so if you think about you know for example Silicon Valley well why is Silicon Valley because it's got all these people that are you know mm. highly talented that are under huge demand but if people can work from home well that dynamic changes right if that dynamic changes they could be living anywhere like you know, they could be living in Sydney and be actually working for Silicon Valley for, for all, all we care. So I think that that's the interesting mm. dynamic that might change. Um, how this plays out is hard to know. Uh, but there's, you know, there's the near-term implication, I think, is in office space and office buildings. But, there, you know, there are longer-term implications of, I think, how business is actually done. Yeah, I agree with that. It's interesting too, mate. I, I, nothing I saw, I think, maybe during the week, maybe it was in the last week, people talking about the difference between 
well, so I mean, work at home becomes work remotely. Work remotely becomes work anywhere. Work anywhere quickly becomes, hang on, why do I have to pay Australian wages to an Australian worker when I can get someone with equal or better qualifications, equal or better skills somewhere else in the world and pay them a fraction of what they're paying? I mean, you know, let's, let's make it personal for a second. At some point, we work from home. We give investment advice on Australian stocks. You know, what's, what's to say that others in other parts of the world who are prepared to work for half or a quarter of what we're on but do a, you know, decent... Let's assume it's a worse job because we're pretty good, but you know, um, you know, <laughs> right across the industry, right? There is some sense that when when offices don't matter, locations don't matter. Then, other than in some, and, and we would probably, frankly, we are probably a little bit protected because ASIC may not love the fact that someone in a different country, without you know being under Australian law, is doing it. So we may actually get away with it. But for most people, without that regulatory kind of barrier, you know, why does you know why does any company who can whose employees can work from home? Need to employ Australian workers at, at you know in unattractive hourly rates. Now you know people yell at the podcast now and say yeah oh, because 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 and I I'm not saying it's necessarily a one way street but it certainly opens up that possibility more widely than it has before, right? Yeah, yeah I mean I'm mean, absolutely I'm totally cognizant of that that position that that can definitely happen largely because I mean it's in a way it's already happening, right? If you think about the gig economy, the way it works is people are basically all contractors, right? So you can today contract for anyone, right? right. Right, and you know, uh, somebody could contract theoretically from I don't know India or China or I don't know Vietnam, Philippines, and and actually provide advice here uh, under some Australian license. Right, I mean that could happen, and mm-hmm. and um, and and I think to a large extent, you know, some of that is already happening. Um, it, I think. Some industries are are it, this is this is really a question of which industries are adaptive or or quick to adapt things, right? So I think you know tech industry would be probably the first one, and tech industry already does that at scale, right? So there's, there's any even if you take any company, if you pick you know a company in Australia, even if it's a small company, it might have a development office somewhere else, right? Might have a development office in Indonesia, might have a development office in India, might have a development office in Vietnam. That is already happening. Yeah, uh, right. It's not that it's it's not new. How much does it accelerate things? Now, the flip side, though, is that if the company is Australian and the it still is is um, you know um, deploying Australian IP created here, developed here, you know maybe designed here, and, and you know some work gets shipped off. I mean, there's still some benefit to that, right? I mean, ultimately the company is profitable. The the maybe the higher value work gets done mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Uh, some lower value get the work gets shipped around uh, to other places. Uh, I mean, this is basically the same thing as offshoring of jobs, but maybe the you know the skill levels are just going up, right? It's not just you know business process outsourcing, um, which we are used to being you know or call centers that are being used to being offshored. It's just other work can also be offshored. Um, and ultimately, this is is a form of globalization, right? I mean, if we if we, if we share goods and services, uh, goods, if we import and export different things, then you know you would think that you know people are just equivalently mobile and their skills are equivalently mobile in this you know sort of more globally connected world. So, mm-hmm. just got to be more competitive. It's an interesting challenge, mate. Last one. Let's uh, let's talk while we're with property, and then we'll get on to. I think we might get on to a question from the Marvac. What do you reckon? I like that idea. <laughs> Before that, though, so let's let's stay in in, in office, mate. Residential construction. It, there's been some headlines again this week, and again from the AFR. You found this one: construction sheds fourteen billion dollars since March. We know <laughs> that the property councils called for fifty thousand dollars from government for every new house built or sold, or whichever whatever point they think the money is due. Um, 
this is a this is a tough spot, right? And I think this is I I this is where it's really worth our, our listeners remembering what government assistance is actually for, despite the appearances. And I'm not saying they should do it, by the way, necessarily. But you know, should should new home buyers get fifty grand? Probably not. Should property you know, home builders get fifty grand? Probably not. But in the absence of that, we may well have tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands of construction workers literally out of a job for an extended period of time. And so, yeah, the people who get the money, get the money in air quotes, might not deserve it for any reasonable reason. But it's one of those situations where there is no good outcome here, right? There's a scenario where either we have, you know, as it tens or hundreds of thousands of construction workers out of work, or we have, um, you know, government having to hand over obscene amounts of money just to keep the thing rolling. It's just kind of, at some level, it's just the cost of doing business, right? The cost of, of managing an economy that is in such a deep funk and is at massive risk. You know, if, if not enough of this is done, frankly, the other problem is all the money we've used so far is actually wasted because we get to the same point we would have got to anyway and we've, <laughs> we've destroyed the budget getting there. It's a really, really tough thing to do. I, 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 don't, I don't have a, have a strong view. My, my view tends to be that given the, and we know by the way, every dollar in construction is worth about $6 in the broader economy, according to the economists. And so there is not only the, the direct jobs lost, but the indirect jobs and the indirect economic activity. It kind of feels like the government has not got much choice other than to make sure building continues, right? Or wrong? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think this is a tough one because, you know, so I think what what was really interesting what, what there was the Fletcher Building CEO, which is, this is the New Zealand construction company, that basically said, well, you know, the worst is yet to come. Uh, you know, they decided to lay off a thousand people in New Zealand, which is a thousand people in New Zealand. It's a huge number. And 500 in Australia. I would have thought it would be the other way around, but, you know, there are New Zealand companies yeah, and, they're, right. and they're, they're cutting uh, a thousand jobs in, in, in New Zealand and 500 here. And, and he's saying that, you know, the worst is yet to come. And, and I think, I think this is, this is where the problem is, right? I think the problem in my view is it's not an industry problem, but it's the way mm, the mm. economy works, right? So, I mean, as I've been, I've been saying for a number of years, you know, if, if you're net migration dependent and you are dependent on this sort of, you know, I call this the property pyramid, if you want the property <laughs> prices to keep going up, you want, you know, people to flip property, you want the stamp duties to be used for various things, you have created a, you know, for many states, the revenue, 25 to 30% of the revenue comes from stamp duty, right? And if you have yeah, a right. single point of failure, you basically are setting yourself up for trouble because then if that one particular sport is uh, disrupted for whatever reason, dislocated for whatever reason, mm-hmm. then you don't mm-hmm. have uh, a fail safe. So I think that's that's the problem, right? I think the problem here is not because, actually the problem is not because of what, you know, the, in the lack of spending or people, um, you know, temporary job loss. So I think the bigger problem is that, you know, there's no net migration. If, if the net migration, if you, if you remove 200,000 people from the Australian population system, these are the 200,000 people who need new houses because these are people who don't live here, who are now living here, mm-hmm. right? And add the you know several hundred thousand people who come and you know uh, spend uh, uh, time in an Airbnb or the you know the several hundred thousand students would come to study here and therefore exactly need a place right. to rent. If you remove yeah. that from the system, so the dependence. Uh, what I'm saying is that this is a exa- classic example of an economy that's too dependent on. Mm. A few things, right? And one is net migration, which is largely because of, you know, I'm not saying migration is bad. All I'm saying is that you're dependent on net migration because you need, you you know, you're too dependent on tourism and you're too dependent on a few other things which then have these spiraling effects. And, you know, I think, 
I'm a big proponent of trying to diversify the economy further so that you don't have a sector that is that important. You know, you don't have one sector that can cause that much dislocation. Um, in, in the, what should the government do here to help uh, the industry out? I don't have really a view on this. Um, you know, should they pay money? Uh, you know, there are many things the government could do. Uh, I mean, there's a flip side here, right? If uh, as you as you pointed out, like you know, if if this money doesn't flow through the system, then they you know they have, you have so many more people unemployed. If there's so many more people are unemployed, then you know they, they're not going to be spending, and their consumption is is going to be hurt. Um, yeah, do I have a view? I really don't know, but I think diversification and thinking of I, I think some structural reforms to the economy is this is really a time to think about the structural reforms instead of trying to prop up particular industries. I think do everything you can to help people, but I think this is the time, in my view, to uh, to think about trying to diversify the economy, trying to make it more, you know, a diversified economy is really, really, that's not dependent on a few things, it's really useful. I think that's right. I think I think the, the only thing I would, I, I would uh, may add to that, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with it or challenge it, but the only thing I would add is that to some degree, if a portion of our wealth is because of that lack of diversification, if the alternative is, hey, we can be more diverse and smaller and less prosperous economy, th- th- there, is, there, is a, there is a trade-off there, right? The imperfect idea of we're insufficiently diversified but richer than we'd be otherwise. And yes, occasionally we're going to have, you know, these sort of, and that, frankly, coronavirus is unpredictable, literally unpredictable, not as in the common, <laughs> common uses, but, you know, it's imp- it would have been impossible to predict. You know, do we want to be an con- economy this size and concentrated or 10% smaller and diversified. Now, they're not the only two options, not binary, but I think we just need to be a little bit careful as, a, as an economy that we don't chase one at the expense of the other. And, and maybe that's the that's the policy challenge, right, is to try and find a way to be both. Um, because, you know, yeah, we can sell this iron ore to China, that'd fix it. <laughs> um, do we really want that? We have less tourists from China, that'd fix it. Do we really want that? Not sure. Um, it, it's, it's a tough thing to do in a global environment, right? We're actually, I mean, the funny thing about globalization is it actually does lean towards specialization by definition. That's the whole idea of sustainable competitive advantage that kind of underpins the, the, the wealth created by global trade. It's a, it's a really interesting challenge. We, we could be smaller and more diversified. Uh, maybe we can be larger and more diversified. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the challenge. But I, I think we need to be a little bit careful what we wish for, at least in some way, um, that we don't end up being, being poorer as a result of trying to do something we don't necessarily think we can or, or we can't in the event actually deliver. I don't necessarily disagree with you, but I think my point really is that the specialization, like, I mean, I mean, I think Australians disproportionately spend on, for example, property, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you disproportionately spend something somewhere, what it means is that you're taking money out mm-hmm. from something else, right? So, you know, if, yeah. if we spent 100K less on property, then we'd be spending that 100K on some sort of, you know, maybe that, that'll go into consumer demand, right? Into something else. Maybe right. we'll buy more shoes. Uh, that's what I'm basically saying. So I, I think, um, yeah, I don't have, again, a good answer for this. Uh, I just feel no, that... No, <laughs> Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I just yeah. feel that, you know, I feel that we're in a corner... Uh, for unforeseen reasons, I get that, but I think yeah, yeah. It, it is also, you know, the, sort of the demand factors that we have created are such that, do we really have a, like, you know, what competitive advantage do we really have in construction? Mm. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm-hmm. not it's not that we are constructing the whole world's 
buildings, right? If we were doing that, then that would be a competitive advantage. We're not doing that. So um, we don't, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of competitive advantage. From a competitive advantage point of view, that's not really, you know, we don't have the world's largest building manufacturing company, right? If we did, yeah. then that would be a competitive advantage. Uh, so <laughs> I think, you know, uh, I'm just saying that, you know, maybe we should think about, you know, Competitive advantage. Like, I mean, selling iron ore, for example, we have a competitive advantage. We have got Correct. really good, uh, you know, iron ore supply, and we've got companies that can actually yeah. extract it at really good prices. So that's a competitive advantage. I'm not saying we do give, so I'm not saying give up competitive advantages. I'm saying create more competitive advantages. And I think, uh, you know, I think it doesn't have to be kind of zero sum. You know, we can, I think we can do both. So. Yes, that's what I think. No, I think, I, I think that's right. That's that is the challenge. I'm not, I'm not, again, I wasn't. I was actually agreeing with you, just in saying that to, in doing so, we need to be a little bit careful what we wish for. We tried to prop up the car industry for forty years, in the end, unsuccessfully. Um, we've tried in the past, you know, nationalising agriculture, and you know, there's, there's we have a, we have a long track record of of industry assistance slash meddling that that frankly we've completely sucked at for for forty years. I'm I'm and maybe I'm just sceptical of of a coordinated effort to try and improve something ends up being a bit of a socialism is a strong word but it ends up almost being that kind of a protectionism racket rather than genuinely improving or fixing those sort of policy issues but but again maybe I'm maybe I'm maybe I'm throwing up the white flag and maybe it's worth worth a go I am totally actually in agreement with you on that. I, I just don't think the government should be taking up anything like that. I mean, you know, broad strokes in terms of, you know, policy is what you do, but you don't. Nationalizing anything, I don't, I, I can't think of one country in the world which has actually nationalized something and done it successfully, right? So I'm not saying, I'm I'm not saying nationalize anything. Um, no, no, uh, no, no, no. Definitely don't do that. Uh, in fact, that would, that would destroy, like, you know, nationalize the iron ore and that would destroy probably the, you know, the, the entire uh, oh. uh, entire mining industry. So you don't want to do that. Uh, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on. <laughs> Very good, Matt. We've got time for one question from the mailbag, Matt. It's from Colin. And it's I, I chose this question because it ties into where we started, which is the market's been down so far. It's up for four days. You know, do we buy now? Do we buy later? You know, what, what do you wait for? How do you overcome that? So here's Colin's question, mate. He says, hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for answering my previous question. I have a follow-up. Now, this is the good part of the part of the message. He says, I've learned two things about myself over the mayhem of the last three months. He says, one, I'm very good at dispassionately watching and only watching my holdings fall by large amounts. As I mentioned before, I'm a subscriber to Motley Fool Pro and I bought all Pro 2 stocks, the new Pro 2 portfolio. I bought all 10 Pro 2 stocks just after launch. Many of these fell up to 75% at the bottom but it didn't bother me at all. So that's awesome, we love that. That's exactly the temperament we want in our listeners, in our members, top marks. But then, he, then Colin says, two, I really struggled to actually pull the trigger to buy. Example in point, I hadn't acted on an idea I had to buy after pay. When the market went off a cliff in early March, I thought, excellent, now might be an opportunity to buy. I watched closely as it fell from 40 to 30 to 20, and in two days, it dropped by half to 10 bucks. I was stunned. The market was losing its mind. The next day, it bounced to 12. Hmm, I thought. The next day, it dropped to nine. On that day, I seriously, seriously thought about buying. The only thing that held me back was the fact that only two days earlier, it had dropped 50% in two days. So I didn't buy that day, Colin says. Over the next three days, it doubled to 20. Wow, this is really volatile, I thought. It'll be interesting to see whether it drops again. It didn't. One month later, it was back to 30. Two weeks after that, back to 40. I watched from the sidelines the whole way. 
and left a potential 400% gain on the table. This is not looking back with hindsight, he says, saying, oh, if only I'd thought to buy on March 23, I've made 400%. I was there, and on that day, I seriously thought about buying, but I didn't, and it cost me a huge gain. He says, I know why I didn't buy that day. I wanted to be more sure I was making the right decision. This is a big part of my personality. I do the work and the research to make sure I'm making the best choices I can, and in almost everything, it pays off for me. But in investing, there is no right choice especially during periods of market mayhem and crazy volatility. He says, do you and Doc have any advice for me so I can get better at making the decision to actually pull the trigger and buy? Full on, Colin. Colin, thank you, mate, for the, the thought. Thank you for that, that little journey through the Afterpay share price over the last couple of months. It's been a, been a heck of a roller coaster ride. Um, it's, one of those, it's one of those stories that is a really salutary tale, right? And, and Colin's saying, look, I, I was okay with the falls. I just couldn't make myself buy and I kind of cost myself some decent coin. Doc, what do you reckon, mate? How, how, how would you advise someone like Colin again, as we always say, we can't give personal advice, but how, how do you, you know, he's good, at, he's good at being dispassionate about the stocks he owns. He just couldn't quite pull the trigger to buy. How, how, would, how could he, or how could any of our listeners, overcome that inertia to just sit in their hands and watch? So Colin, Matt, I'll just say this. First of all, what you've described is not uncommon, right? I mean, it's mm-hmm. very, very common. Super it common. happens. It, I mean, uh, so so we we own uh, Afterpay in uh, in in one of the pro portfolios, not not Pro Two, so the Pro One. We didn't sell it, but we also mm-hmm. didn't buy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, and and here's the thing. I think. There's, I, I like to say this, in investing, there is really no, maybe no one correct answer, right? And the reason for that is it really depends on what you are thinking and how you are approaching it, right? So yep. in our case, we had a certain portfolio allocation to, uh, to Afterpay. Now, Afterpay, as I've said many, many times, it's a high, very high risk stock. Right. It's a high risk because there's there's a whole bunch of you know outcomes that are possible. It's really executing well, but you know it's still a credit company too, you know. And and when 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 credit is at, is at risk, you know the stock can pull back. And that was sort of you know the 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 reaction at that time. So what what here's what I like to do personally. Like if I I like to have a you know having a watch list. So it, it, this helps with the buying process, having a watch list of stocks and maybe dusting that up when there's like, you know, severe market dislocation, thinking about sort of, you know, enterprises that make sense to you. Like, you know, what I, I like to call this like low ball enterprises price, mm-hmm. right? So if you think if you think after Afterpay is a bargain, irrespective of the risks that you know about at say $20 and you decided that a prior, then that, that becomes a good enough um, benchmark to buy, right? And then you need to think about position sizing because you need to you need to realize if you're buying new things and they're risky, then you need to appropriately position size it. I think that's the most important thing. Sometimes just not doing anything is just fine. Just because the <laughs> stock has yeah. has bounced up and down, just because it has yeah. gone up, doesn't necessarily mean that you know you needed to buy it. You don't need to buy every stock to do well. That's the other thing. You know, if you if your current set of stocks are just doing fine, you really need one more stock. You probably don't need it. Um, so there are all those considerations. Ultimately, what I think it's very easy to look at what I don't own, 
and think, oh, that one one went up that much. I think what I like people to think about, <laughs> it's better to think about what you currently own and how that is doing, right? And that's your starting point, really. Um, you know, is, is that doing well? Great. If, you know, are you unhappy with it? Then that's the question. If you're unhappy with it or you think it could do better, then there's something um, to think about, right? So it's, it's, it's a whole gamut of things. You know, do you really need to own it? Maybe not, you know, again, is, is your portfolio geared towards a very higher risk, sort of higher reward type of, you know, where you can get, you know, a lot of burnouts, um, mm. uh, but some successes then, you know, maybe you want to have to pay, maybe, maybe you don't want to have to pay if you want a more stable, less volatile portfolio. So all of those questions, I would say, uh, yeah. So that, that is a roundabout way of saying that, you know, maybe you have not done anything wrong. <laughs> Uh, by not buying, I, I think that's. I think that's a really good. I think that's a really good feedback, Doc. I, I look. I, I will say. I think. I mean, Colin. I, I actually think Colin. You probably already know the answer, mate. Is my is my guess because you actually you've kind of defined it really nicely as you get to the end and you kind of you know you say look. Um, you know, I, I know I didn't buy that day. I want to be more sure. Make the right decision. All that kind of stuff. It's it's one of those things you worry about the stock falling further. And I think I I haven't yet really come up with a good mental framework to, to explain this really, really well. So maybe you guys can help me, Doc, or, or someone listening. Give me, give me something, give me a framework to help me do this one. There is just something really, really, really fundamentally human about not wanting to pay more than we have to. And so it is always that sense of, but what if it falls further and I miss the opportunity? That drives us nuts. And all of us, including me, same thing, right? Um, you look at a stock, oh man, I'd like it at that price. Well, if it gets a bit cheaper, it'd be even better. I guess I'll buy it at that price. Not only that, it's, you know, it's worse, Doc. We say to ourselves, if it fell from 30 to 20, I definitely, oh, that'd be great value. And then it does, and you think, oh, but maybe it'll fall further. We kind of continually bring down that kind of, you know, it's almost like moving a stop loss order. We, we, it's a stop buy order, right? We, we bring it down further and further and further and say, well, it's already gone from 20 to 10. So I guess if it goes further than that, I'll definitely buy then. And, and so we kind of bring that, we bring that kind of benchmark down as we go. And it's a, it's a stupidly painful human condition that, and it's not Collins, every, literally every investor, I guess. I mean, Buffett, again, second time in the episode, mate, I should be on a retainer from Uncle Warren. Um, he missed out on making $8 billion buying Walmart because of a couple of cents a share. He was negotiating apparently with a, with a seller and he wanted a, a particular price and the seller wouldn't come down to meet him. And it was apparently two cents different per share, right? Two cents. And Buffett's like, no, I'm not gonna buy it. Well, this is that price. And he says, in hindsight, he's you know eight billion dollars it cost him. So don't worry about your four hundred percent gain, Colin. I know it's I know it's painful to you, but at least you're not at least you're not Buffett and dusting eight billion dollars. Um, that kind of you know it, it's just it's it's completely human and it's completely normal and completely natural. It is though also something we desperately need to try and overcome because the question, as you say, Doc, is if you think Afterpay is worth buying at forty or thirty when it gets to twenty. You know, there is absolutely no reason not to buy it other than that sense of maybe it goes down further. And this is exactly, by the way, and that's why we put this at the bottom after after starting the, the, the podcast with exactly this, it's same as the market. The market falls 10, then 20, then 30%. People say, oh, I might fall further, I won't buy yet. And then it goes up a bit, they say, oh, it's gone back up. I, it'll, it'll fall again. Or it's already gone up, I missed the bottom, I'm not going to buy at all. And either of those two is just this really, you know, we, we, we so so badly hate missing the opportunity to buy at a cheaper price. The possibility we're buying at 10 and it might be nine tomorrow is just so, such an anathema to our way of thinking we just can't do it. Now, I don't, uh, the, the way I would do it, honestly, Colin, is just simply say either, two ways. This is, this is another ad for dollar cost averaging. So just buy some because you want to buy some. And if it goes up or goes down, then at least you bought some and Doc kind of alluded to that. Um, the other option is just literally buy because you think it's an attractive price. I've, I said about the market the whole way through this downturn, 
that or not the whole way through, but as it, as it got to a new low, I think it was about, what, 30% off, Doc, or 35% off. Um, certainly when it was 25% down, I said on this podcast, I said on, we had a Facebook Q&A, we've done, I've written emails about it. You know, if at 25% down, you get a 33% recovery to back to the previous high. Now, that's not a guarantee because it may not ever get there, but I think it probably will. And you're going you're gonna to get the value of a 30% gain just to get back to where we used to be, no matter what happens in the meantime. And so if the market halves again, well, that's going to kind of suck. But if it gets back to the original level eventually, you're still making that 33% gain. It's one of those things where you are literally looking the gift horse in the mouth. You hear the market saying, would you like a 33% gain? And you're saying, no, no, I don't. I'd rather, I'll only buy if it gets down to 40% or 45%. And when you think about it from that context, it really is crazy. And again, not to bag Colin, because I'm the same, you're the same, everyone's the same. But if you can try and get that, form, that, that framework in your head, right? If after is going to go to 100 and you get to buy it at 20 or 30, well, okay, 20 is better than 30, but gee, both are better than 40 and, and all of them are better than 100. So if you think you're going to make money on the stock, waiting for some arbitrary price, that means you might miss out on the rest, as you as yourself have said with Afterpay, Colin, is really, really problematic. So mate, there is no, there's no trick to it other than recognising it in yourself and just simply buying when the price is attractive. And then maybe you want to buy some more if it falls further. Maybe you don't, depending, as you say, on Doc's, um, as Doc said about portfolio kind of allocations. But in any case, you know, the bottom is the enemy. You know, perfect is the enemy of the good. It applies incredibly when it comes to buying at the right price, when it comes to shares. Good will give you great results. Perfect, if you could do it, would give you spectacular results, but no one can. And so trying to do it and missing out on the great results just from buying at good prices... I think, you know, it's, it's one of those kind of if you know it's just spite your face kind of scenarios. So I, I can't give you a really good single easy solution because if it was, then as you say, Doc, you would have done, you would have bought more after pay, I would have bought other stocks. Um, we've all made the mistake. So first thing is, as you say, mate, just accepting it, acknowledging it and realising it's going to happen again. Um, but also just buying when you see value regardless of what happens next. Ignore what happens next in the short term. The long term is all that matters. Any more on that? No, sir. Now, speaking of... Doc stock selections. If you want to get some more from the good doctor, you should go and join his service, Motley Full Extreme Opportunities. He runs that with Kevin Gandia. He's an offsider. Those guys do a spectacular job of trying to find the biggest and best opportunities in the smaller, riskier end of the market. Some of them will go badly. A lot of them will go, I expect, very well. And again, we can't give guarantees or promises. So all I can tell you is I think those guys are super smart guys who pick stocks really, really well. So if you want to get something from Doc and Kevin, some advice, some uh, recommendations, I suggest joining Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. It is dirt cheap, as I say every week. It is stupidly cheap, right? Like if this stuff was was priced properly, you'd be paying, you could add a zero to the price at the very, very least, but you're not going to have to because our paymasters, our, our, uh, our marketing team get to set the price on this stuff and frankly, they set prices too low. So go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast and you can get a special deal for our podcast listeners to join Doc and Kevin at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities. I, I got to say, mate, I say this semi-regularly, our services are so incredibly cheap. I think it's actually more expensive not to buy a subscription because if you, if you join and you don't like it you've dusted a couple of bucks and after a year you just you know that's fine just just go on a merry way you keep listening to the podcast of course but if, if EO is not for you that's fine the possibility you can spend well, let's be honest less than a hundred bucks a year and get some stock recommendations that are going to make you more than that I, I, I don't I really honestly don't know how you can be an investor and not join EO put it that way so fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast is where we want you to go and join Doc and Kevin Mate, that wraps us up. I, I think we can assume we're going to do a mailbag episode this Sunday, can't we? No, it's no longer a secret. 
<laughs> it's really not. I'm going to have to stop calling it a bonus episode at some point. But, you know, for now it's still a bonus mailbag episode. It will be on this Sunday. So make sure you listen. We've got some really, really cracking questions. I've already got a list in front of me. So just make sure you listen. It's an interesting kind of – some interesting questions from our listeners, including here's – a, here's a teaser from Tristan Doc. Tristan wants to know our which economy or region we would pick to invest for the next five to ten years. Now, don't answer it now. That'll be our first question on Sunday. So make sure, if you're not already subscribed, you do subscribe to the Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, like one of our questions, leave us a five-star review, leave us a rating, let other people know how you're finding the podcast. If you don't like it, of course, don't leave a rating. Um, just, you know, if you, if you don't like it, keep it yourself. If you do like it, let everyone else know because, hey, who couldn't use a little more foolishness in their lives? And, of course, you can get some of that for yourself by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.